Short rounds. Hey guys, welcome back to Unknown Soldiers. I'm your host, James Hauser, and if you're like me, you are thinking whatever god you do or don't worship that it's Friday. And I hope you'll enjoy a little short round to boost your Friday festivities, whatever those happen to be. Earlier this week, I began my first series, which will cover the Jacobite Wars from 1688 to 1746. These were the conflicts which saw the exiled Stuart dynasty trying to reclaim the thrones of England, Scotland, and Ireland after they lost them in the Glorious Revolution of 1688. Today's short round is a critical part of that larger story, and I'm going to refer to people, places, and events from Monday's episode. So if you haven't listened to episode 11, The Exiled Kings, I recommend that you do so. If you have, sweet, on with the show, let's go. So there were some people in the last episode who will be increasingly important throughout the rest of the series, and they're so important that I decided to give them their own short round so I can really explain how they fit into the story. Those people are the Scottish Highland clans, who were the backbone of every Jacobite rising from 1689 to 1745. So before we get into the story of Bonnie Prince Charlie, the 45, the Battle of Culloden, on Monday... First, we need to make a close examination of the clans. Who were they? What was their world like? How did they fight? And why were they so important to the Jacobite cause? As always, this is not just history, but military history. So there's some dark and bloody stuff going on. The podcast is PG-13, the language is clean, the content is not. All my sources will be posted on my website, so if you want to fact check me, feel free to do so. Finally, Any errors, mispronunciations, or mistakes are my own. I'm trying to be entertaining, but all the information I'm giving you is accurate to the best of my knowledge. This was a real story with real people who don't deserve to be unknown soldiers. So let's go. First off, what are the Scottish Highlands? The Highlands make up most of northern and western Scotland, from about 50 to 60% of the total landmass, depending on how you slice it. What is and isn't part of the Highlands is kind of up for debate sometimes. They include the jagged, hairy-looking coast of western Scotland, from Glasgow to Inverness, and all those islands on the western coast as well. You might have seen images in movies or TV shows. Broad, rocky plains, enormous hills broken by canyons and lakes, with deep, dark glens and wild woods. The highlands are broad, wild, open, beautiful. They make you feel small. The geography of the highlands shaped and molded the society that lived there. The fact that the highlands are so massive, so difficult to access, so mountainous and rocky, kept the population very dispersed. They have one of the lowest population densities in Europe. The reason you see all those beautiful, unspoiled landscapes is that the highlands are remote, resource-poor, and terrible for farming. The most gorgeous landscapes in Europe are some of the least fertile areas of the continent. Around 400 million years ago, the collision of two land masses along a fault line forced the creation of this mountainous region in northwestern Britain. The fault line has since become known as the Highland Line, a line stretching from southwest to northeast in a sort of curved line across Scotland, from just north of Glasgow to just east of Inverness. The Highland Line was not just a geographic curiosity, but a line that divided two drastically different societies in the 1700s. To the east and south lived the Lowland Scots, who made up about 70% of the population. 
All Scotland's major cities, including Edinburgh, Glasgow, and Aberdeen, were in the Lowlands. The Lowlands spoke English, or its related language very close to English, Scots, and lived in a settled agricultural society. They took part in trade and commerce, lived under well-ordered government, legal, and religious systems, and behaved and dressed in ways very similar to their English neighbors. Those are the Lowlanders, those are the Lowlands, and they make up most of Scotland's population. North and west, though, beyond the Highland Line, was like a different world. The Highlands were sparsely populated, with scattered villages and basically no towns. The Highlanders largely still spoke Gaelic, the language of the ancient Celts. Since the soil in the Highlands is so poor, their society depended on the herding of cattle rather than on farming. Their society was based on custom and tradition rather than on contract or law. Their religious beliefs were mystical and magical, based almost as much on ancient Celtic tradition as on Christian doctrine. In an increasingly modern world of capitalism and strong central governments and standing armies, the Highlanders stood out by their adherence to old customs and traditions. Because while the English and lowland Scots lived in a modernizing society of towns and commerce and so-called civilization, the Highland Scots remained frozen in the ancient world of the Gaelic clan. There were about 40 major Highland clans around the time of our story, say 1745. The clan was a mixture of feudal and patriarchal systems. Feudal because it revolved around land, duties, and obligations that people owed to their overlords in something like a medieval sense. Patriarchal because it revolved around strong families of hereditary chiefs whose names were taken by the whole clan. The Frasers or the Macdonalds or the Campbells or the Grants all bore that last name. Which really confused me during my research for this podcast, because there's like 20 people named John Campbell in this time period, and I managed to boil it down to two just for you guys. Each clan had a founding myth, a collective belief that they were all descended from a common ancestor. These myths created a feeling of kinship between people who really had no blood relation at all. At the top of the clan was the chief, who both the government in London and their own clansmen acknowledged as these were the head honchos. These are the guys in charge in the Highlands. If you want an example of absolute monarchy, look no farther than the Highland clan chief. The chief had more direct power over his subjects than the King of England or Scotland ever had over theirs. He controlled their lives. He could tax them, punish them, call them out to war. He wielded the powers of judge, jury, and executioner over the members of his clan, and he could inflict severe punishments. One Highland chief, when he found a woman who was, was accused of stealing money from him, he had her tied by her hair to the seaweed on the beach so that the waves eventually came in and drowned her. This was in like 1740. This was not that long before our story. The Highland chief's rights were not based on law, but on ancient custom and tradition, which explains how downright medieval and barbaric some of these punishments could be. The clansmen swore undying loyalty to the chief. There was this whole ceremony where the clansmen would swear their dirks or their daggers to the chief, proclaiming to God that if they ever betrayed their oath, the iron should pierce their heart. To be seen as a man of honor, you followed your chief, even if his actions were illegal, immoral, or downright stupid. But this loyalty was supposed to be a two-way street. The chief was expected to look after his clansmen, provide for them, and show himself to be a mighty war leader in times of trouble. The clansmen had obligations, but the chief had responsibilities. 
Below the chiefs were the taxmen. You might think of taxmen as like knights or lesser nobles, the gentlemen. The chiefs would lease out portions of his land, or what were called tax, T-A-C-K-S, to the taxmen, who would then sublet it to the various clan members. Most of the clan lands were supposed to be held in common, with the chief and the taxmen providing structure for who got to use what land when. The taxmen were the chief's enforcers and sheriffs, and like any middle management, they tended to be petty tyrants. Then you had the mass of ordinary clansmen. The clansmen owed taxes and military service to the chiefs, and since cash was hard to come by in the highlands, these taxes were usually paid in kind, which means through crops, livestock, or labor. The clansmen answered to the taxmen, who would get these taxes at the point of a sword, and that included military service. If the chief called the clan out and someone didn't want to go, the taxmen would drag him out or even burn his dwelling around him. And you think modern army recruiters are underhanded. The Highlands were probably the poorest part of Europe in the 1700s, and they were astonishingly poor, barren soil and oversized population and virtually no infrastructure. Anyone who visited the Highlands from the Lowlands or from England was shocked by the sheer just misery. Most of the clansmen and their families lived on the constant verge of starvation. One of their chief sources of food was a kind of blood porridge, with cow's blood being mixed with oatmeal, causing many cows to be so weak that they could barely stand. Highland houses were mud huts, with smoky fires burning through the winter to keep their people warm. So the men and women and children were usually covered in dirt, soot, and grime. They sat around their fires telling stories and singing songs of their clans and heritage, mystical tales of the ancient Irish kings and Celtic gods. Clan life was also very violent in addition to being dirty and poor. Unlike the settled Scots of the Lowlands, the clan economy revolved around cattle, and stealing cattle was the favorite pastime of the Highlanders. Cattle raids and cattle wars were constantly ongoing. One chief supposedly kept 100% of all his men employed, half of them guarding his cattle and half of them stealing someone else's cattle. It was like the Hatfields and the McCoys in the Scottish Highlands, man, but all the time. The Highlands had a population of probably around 300,000 in 1745, which amounted to only about 25 to 30% of Scotland's total population. Oddly enough, some of the most famous symbols of Scotland originated not as national symbols, but as Highland symbols, the symbols of a minority. The transition of the bagpipe and the tartan from pieces of Highland culture to pieces of Scottish culture only occurred long after this period, and we're going to talk about that. But let's look at these two artifacts. So first, right, you got the tartan, the plaid. In the 1700s, the vast majority of Highlanders wore the tartan or the plaid as their main article of clothing. Despite what Braveheart may tell you, the tartan really only came into fashion around the 1500s, you know, 200 years after William Wallace. One of many things that movie gets wrong. It's also important to point out that the idea of each clan having their own special pattern, design, or color scheme did not come into existence until well after the 45 and the Battle of Culloden. Now, clan chiefs and well-to-do taxmen might wear the kilt, the vest, the bonnet, the whole get-up that we know from paintings and TV and movies. But remember, most Highlanders are stinking poor. So in many cases, the tartan was all they had. Here's how Captain Edward Burt of the British Army described his impression of the Highlanders. The plaid serves the ordinary people for a cloak by day and bedding by night. By the latter, it imbibes so much perspiration that no one day can free it from the filthy smell. 
even some of better than ordinary appearance, when the plaid has to be adjusted, conveys the offense in whiffs which are intolerable. Yeah, Captain Burt is probably being a snooty Englishman, but keep in mind, nobody smelled good in the 18th century. So if he thought the Highlanders stank, they stank. Imagine a whole lifetime's worth of B.O. We might imagine what history looks or feels or sounds like, and that's all well and good, but we probably don't want to imagine what it smelled like. Then you have the bagpipes. In the Highlands, the skilled piper was one of the most important parts of a chief's court and his fighting force. The piper stirred the hearts of the men and often scared the heck out of the enemy. But it was also a way of giving orders. Don't know if you know this, but the bagpipes are extremely loud. They could sound the advance, the charge, the alert, or very rarely, the retreat. They were part of the military unit. The best pipers learned their skill from the McCrimmon piping family, who had played for the McLeod clan since the 1500s and even ran their own bagpipe school. Any clan chief worth the dang had his own piper, so he basically had his own soundtrack, almost like a WWE superstar. When the clan chiefs did want to call out their fighting men, they would send what was called the fiery cross. This was a pole or a cross, a wooden stake, with one end painted with blood and the other lit on fire. Like some sort of ultraviolet Olympic torch, the fiery cross would go up and over the foggy hills and mountains of the highlands, passed on person by person. It was a double message, a call to arms for those who were to come out and fight for their chief, and a threat to those who refused the call. When the fiery cross went out, it was game on. So this was the crazy world of the Highland clans. In the 1700s, Englishmen or lowland Scots saw the clan system as a medieval leftover, almost a museum piece. Many outsiders regarded the Highlanders as barbarians, savages, or even subhuman. The supporters of the Glorious Revolution and the Enlightenment, the New Order, saw the Highlands as backwards, superstitious, undeveloped, an untamed and wild landscape that needed to be brought under some sort of order. It was one of the last holdouts of the ancient Celtic ways of life that had vanished from the rest of Britain. So what do the Highlands mean for our story? The story of the Jacobite cause. The Highlands were the starter ingredient for any Jacobite war for one big reason— They were the only place in Britain in the 1700s where you could find an organized group of combat troops ready to fight at a moment's notice. Any place else, the Scottish Lowlands, England, Ireland, would take weeks or even months to raise an effective military unit. But not the Highlands. When the fiery cross was lit and the clans were called out, they formed up into a clan regiment. The chief was their colonel, or someone the chief appointed. The taxmen were the officers, and the clansmen formed the ranks. The whole clan could be brought up behind the bagpipes, dressed in the tartan, with their swords and dirks and musket ready for war in a matter of days. The Highlanders were tough, hardy, used to violence, loyal to their chiefs, and outstandingly courageous. The Highland way of war was unique for the European continent. Gonna beat that drum again, guys. You know I got to. Culture affects the way people fight their wars. The old Gaelic warrior culture, combined with the physical environmental aspects of their homeland, meant that Highland's tactics and strategies were different from the rest of Europe. Most European armies by the 1700s fought in long infantry lines, using volleys of musket fire to rake each other from a distance. The Highlanders, on the other hand, 
fused traditional Gaelic guerrilla tactics with gunpowder technology in an alternative tactic that combined mobility with shock power. The main Highland tactic was known as the Highland Charge. The Highlanders would use favorable terrain and surprise to get up close to their enemy. They would fire a wild musket volley at short range to confuse and stun their opponents. Then they would drop their muskets and, armed with a broadsword and, sh- and a small shield called the Targe or the Target, they would charge with astounding ferocity. The Highlanders did not use the Claymore. The big two-handed sword had gone out of fashion back in the 1500s. They weren't using the big claymore. Instead, they used the basket-hilted broadsword that they had adopted from the European continent, which was still often referred to as a claymore out of habit. It might seem kind of weird. How does charging lines of men with guns work when you have a sword and shield? But keep in mind how long it took to reload old-school muskets. You could barely fire one volley before the Highlanders were on top of you, hacking and slashing. It was a combination of the quick shock value of the firepower, the musket volley, and then the immediate cold steel value of a Highland charge. A good Highland charge would usually end a battle in a matter of minutes. It was just such a massive rapid shock that most infantry would run away before the Highlanders even made contact. If a bunch of angry rednecks with sharp pointy objects ran toward you, you'd probably run away too. In keeping with this trend of move fast, strike hard, a Highland army carried less artillery or baggage on the march than other European armies. This meant it was much faster and more maneuverable. But that very lack of artillery and baggage that made the Highlanders so fast also meant that they had very little staying power, very little reserve, or the ability to capture fortresses. A Highland army had to keep moving, or it would suffer from a lack of supplies and eventually desertion. Because the Highlanders had high morale, but very low discipline. If they lost momentum in a campaign, they would start to drift away or desert or just give up and go home. This is what happened in last this week's episode, after Dundee was killed at Killacranky and the Earl of Mar lost the Battle of Sheriff Muir. They lost momentum. The Highlanders went home. Screw this, we're done. Highland armies had been highly effective in battles, even before the Jacobite era. Many battles of the English Civil War had been won by the Marquess of Montrose and his Highland army. Then, of course, you have Viscount Dundee, who had won a great victory, the Battle of Killicranky, before his death. What's noteworthy is that neither Montrose nor Dundee, nor the Earl of Mar, nor the Stuarts themselves, were clansmen or members of a clan. The clans always needed an outside leader to unify them, since no one clan chief would ever hoped or think of bowing to another clan chief. So this was why the Stuarts had always depended on the clans for their military power in Scotland. In the Civil War, in the Jacobite Risings of 1689, 1715, 1719, the clans had been the strike force of the Stuart cause. So we know what the Jacobites got out of supporting the clans, of allying with the clans. What did the clans get out of it? The value the clans placed on tradition, hierarchy, on an absolute authority made them natural allies of the Stuarts on like an ideological level. Many clan chiefs sided with the Stuarts because they saw the glorious revolution of 1688 and the Act of Union in 1707 as a threat to their long-held traditional rights and the clan way of life. And they had a point. The modern world was creeping into the highlands. The clan system was dying. I mentioned earlier this week that Jacobites were people who felt left behind by the modern world. And by 1745, 
few people felt more left behind than the Scottish Highland clans. For starters, the government was getting closer. To the British government, the 15 and the 19 had demonstrated the dangers of leaving the Highlands uncontrolled, wild, untouched. Under the leadership of General George Wade, the British Army built a series of military roads and forts throughout the wild lands of northwestern Scotland, anchored by Fort William on the western coast and Fort Augustus at the southern tip of Loch Ness. These redcoat fortresses were constant reminders of the hated act of union. They made the Highlanders mad to see British troops walking through their homeland, just like the redcoats in Boston would make Americans mad about 30 years later. But I cannot repeat this enough, and I'll say this again. Not all clans or Scots were Jacobite. Many of the clans had always and would always side with the government, or even stay neutral whenever a big Jacobite uprising occurred. The clans were split just like the rest of Britain was, and often along the same lines. Remember our big divisions? The clans were divided politically, based on whether they were in good with the government economically, based on who benefited financially from the new order, and religiously. The single best indicator for whose side a clan would take was whether they were Catholic or Episcopalian, in which case they leaned Jacobite, or Presbyterian, in which case they leaned pro-government. Despite the Catholic Highlander being a big stereotype of the Highlands, probably only 25% of the Highland clans were in fact Catholic, and not everybody in those clans was a Catholic. But old clan feuds also played into it and could derail the uprising if the clans decided, hey, I'm going to go take care of my clan feud instead of actively contributing to the war. If one clan was pro-government, for instance, and another clan had a blood feud with them, they might join the Jacobites. This was the case for Clan Campbell and Clan MacDonald, who were longtime rivals in the southwestern highlands. During the killing time in Scotland, when the Episcopalian Church was persecuting the hardcore Presbyterians, the Episcopalian Macdonalds had been used by the government to persecute the Presbyterian Campbells. The Campbells got their revenge after the Glorious Revolution when the two situations reversed. In 1692, they treacherously slaughtered a large number of Macdonalds in what became known as the Glencoe Massacre. Since this was done with William III's approval, Glencoe became a byword for the evil influence of the New Order among the Highlands. The Campbells were the strongest Highland clan, and they were utterly loyal to the Glorious Revolution and the New Order. Remember the pro-government general who fought the Earl of Mar at the Battle of Sheriff Muir at the end of last week's episode? That was John Campbell, the Duke of Argyle, chief of the, Ch- chief of the Campbell clan. The Dukes of Argyle and the Earls of Loudoun were always pro-government. Many of his clansmen had fought at Sheriff Muir against the Jacobites. Throughout the 1720s and 1730s, Clan Campbell used its economic power and influence to buy up large amounts of clan land through legal and not-so-legal means. This threatened many smaller clans who would, be, who would be forced to side with the Jacobites to preserve their lands and rights against the Campbell steamroller. When they came out in 1745, they were motivated less because they loved the Stuarts and they liked Bonnie Prince Charlie so much than this was their chance to get back at the Campbells. But the clan system was also dying for economic reasons. The forces that the Glorious Revolution had unleashed undermined the clan system and threatened the Highland way of life. 
Prices were rising, land speculation and enclosures were driving up costs, and many of the chiefs were deeply in debt. The Campbells were the face of this change, but behind the Campbells was the rising power of capitalism. The waves of global economic change were slowly eroding the traditional Highland order. One of the chief agents of this change was a man who is going to be extremely important for the next few episodes. His name was Duncan Forbes, and he, more than any single other individual, would be the reason the 45 would fail. Duncan Forbes was a powerful political and legal figure in Scotland throughout the 1730s and 1740s. He was a Whig and a diehard anti-Jacobite. In 1737, Forbes was appointed Lord President of the Court of Session, which made him the highest-ranking legal official in Scotland, something like a combination of the Supreme Court Chief Justice and the Attorney General. Forbes usually worked from his manor house outside of Inverness, his home, a little place called, hint hint, Culloden House. Forbes knew the clan system inside and out, saw how dangerous they were to the new order, and made it his personal mission to destroy Jacobitism in the Highlands. He used economic policies, like promoting the monetization of clan lands. This introduced the clan lands into the real estate market and undermined the traditional power of the chiefs and the taxmen. By converting the old feudal system into a rental system, by converting the chiefs into landlords, the old power of the chiefs to call out the clans would eventually fade away. Forbes built relationships, networked, communicated, provided favors for many of the chiefs, placing them in his debt, and the debt of the British government. When he couldn't persuade them, he blackmailed them. Norman MacLeod of Dunvegan and Alexander MacDonald of Sleet were the two most powerful chiefs on the Isle of Skye, and both of them were diehard Jacobites, until Forbes learned that they had been selling some of their clansmen to indentured servitude in the Americas, basically packing off some of their own clansmen and selling them into slavery. Forbes prevented this from being discovered, or the chiefs from being punished, in exchange for their loyalty to the government. Forbes basically said, I own you now. I own you. And he did. By 1745, Duncan Forbes had woven many of the clan chiefs into his web. He was almost like a mafioso with how carefully he managed his network of patronage, subterfuge, and blackmail. Forbes's expertly laid groundwork would go a long way towards dooming the Jacobite cause. So when Prince Charles Edward Stuart landed in the Highlands, he would find the clan chiefs ambivalent and divided. Many were reluctant to join him, either because their interests didn't align with the Jacobites or because they weren't optimistic about the outcome. Only some chiefs would come out for Charlie, including clans like the Camerons, the Macdonalds, and the Frasers. Others, like the Campbells, the Mackays, the Monroes, and the Sutherlands, would come out for King George. Every clan chief made his own decision based on his own unique situation. But for many clans, their way of life was dying, and they knew it. Anything that could reverse the tide of modernization could stop the looming threat of the new order, of capitalism, of globalism, that threatened their entire world. Well, that was a cause worth fighting for. That, above all, was why the Highland cause ended up becoming so closely associated with the Jacobite cause. That was why when the fiery crosses went out in 1745, when Bonnie Prince Charlie had landed and ignited the last great Highland uprising, so many men in Tartan would come out to chant their war cries and raise their banners for their prince. 
It was the last gasp of a dying civilization, and they were determined to go out pipes playing and sword swinging. 1745 would be the clan's last stand. Thanks a bunch for listening to me today. I hope you enjoyed the background on the Highland clans, because it's going to be super important in the episodes to come. If you listen close, you can almost hear the sound of bagpipes. Thank you also for your continued support of the podcast. If you like what you hear, tell your friends. If you don't, tell your enemies. You don't have enemies, go make some. Life's too short. If you want to support in other ways, you can find a donate button on my website at unknownsoldierspodcast.com. You can also find me on Facebook or on Twitter at UNKSoldiersPod. You can even email me at unknownsoldierspodcast at gmail.com. I always appreciate feedback and commentary, even if it's just kind words. I'm not perfect, so if you got advice, I'd love to hear it. And if you liked hearing about the clans, you're in luck, because on Monday, you get to see them in action. Because Bonnie Prince Charlie will land, the fiery crosses will be lit, and the clans are coming out to fight for the Stuarts, Scotland, and their way of life. The 45 is about to begin on Monday on Unknown Soldiers.